Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast that's all about hitting rewind and occasionally fast forward on the bands and scenes we love. I'm Rick Martin and this, my partner in crime, is Sarah Jane Kemp. How are you keeping yourself busy, Sarah? Hi, Rick. Uh, yeah, I mean, still locked down. Um, I have been cooking an absolute feast uh, over the last sort of week. I've found an amazing fish delivery place from, if anyone knows their seafood, Billingsgate Market, the the kind of the place that restaurants get their fish from in, in London and they, they deliver to my house. So I've been, yeah, I've got loads of fresh fish in the, uh, the fridge and the freezer. So I've just been uh, experimenting, which has been great. How about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not as much of a, a home chef as you. I can cook about three different meals. Um, and I guess with you, it, there's always that crossover between food and music, isn't it? We did that episode with uh, the guys from the Big Rap Cookbook on a previous series. So, yeah, that, that's that's kind of a, a common theme that comes around. How am I keeping busy? Doing this, really. <laughs> More of these. I sound like David Brent when he goes to that uh, nightclub. Like, what, what, how are you keeping busy? Well, just doing more of these really running exercising just yeah trying to keep my uh trying to keep myself sane but yeah i guess we said on the last episode we kind of wanted to make this a bit of a lockdown and covid free zone so that's probably as much chat as we need on what we're doing in lockdown right absolutely i completely agree this is a this is a safe haven from uh, covid yeah this is definitely a covid secure podcast given that we're recording what 50 60 maybe even like 70 miles apart by road uh, over teams yeah, I mean, you live in Ashford, Kent, don't you? And I live in uh, Croydon, so we're very far away. Um, but anyway, we don't need to talk about the geography of, uh, of where we are. Uh, do you want to give the listeners an idea of what we're going to be talking about this week, Rick? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I think we're, we're maybe doing something slightly different on this episode. You know, I think a lot of our recent episodes have been focused on a very specific era, era of music, the era of kind of the guitar scene that we grew up in the uh in the noughties um and obviously we're going to return to that a lot because it's 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 one of the scenes that we know and love but um yeah we're going back a couple of years earlier than that to uh 2001 uh, and a band who i think had nothing to do really with everything else that was going on at the time which is Turing breaks indie folk heroes Turing breaks who are celebrating the 20th anniversary of their debut album the optimist lp so we've got Ollie Knights from the band on and he's going to talk about the, the band's 20 year career. That's a pretty hefty, hefty career and uh, their memories of putting together what's being considered, I know definitely by you, Rick, as a, a bit of a cult classic. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to me, the, the Optimist LP still sounds uh, as fresh as ever. I've been listening to it again kind of recently in, in the lead up to, to this interview with Ollie Knights. But yeah, we'll go on to that a little bit later on in the episode. But I thought before we get into all things uh, Turing Breaks, and because we haven't talked about this era of music as much, Sarah, kind of at the turn of the millennium, uh, I thought it'd be good to kind of set the scene of what the 2001 music scene actually looked like and kind of the albums from that year. And I think from my memories, I mean, it was, I started reading The Enemy in kind of 99. So by 2001, I'd kind of immersed myself um in sort of the music press and I'd kind of graduated from listening to bands like Oasis and The Verve and the Manic Street Preachers to I guess uh, more kind of alternative less known sort of stuff but I think it was also quite a weird time uh, for music you know you'd kind of had Britpop in the 90s which had kind of then died a death towards the end of that decade sort of dance music was huge at the time not that dance music is a bad thing but I think it sort of took over a little bit in, in terms of the charts and it maybe sort of knocked indie music to the side and new metal as well and again like not a genre that 
um, I completely hated. In fact, later on, I'm going to mention one of the bands that I love from that scene who are still one of my uh, favourite bands. But I think what you can say is the British indie scene was definitely in a bit of a lull. And I, I guess that's probably reflected in some of the things you might have been listening to at the time, because you definitely weren't uh, as much of an indie kid back then, were you? No, and this was very much, 2001 was very much my R&B pop music phase. Uh, I didn't really, as we've you know talked about before, I didn't really discover uh, kind of guitar music, as we call it, until a, a few years later, I think. I was, I was about, you know, 17 when I went to college, when I discovered it. Um, and then, of course, I went back and listened to everything that I'd missed out on throughout, you know, growing up. Uh, which was, was which was great, and I still do. And there's definitely still things, some things that kind of crop up that I've, I've missed. But yeah, this was 100% my R and B phase. So you know, you, you mentioned you're into kind of the R and B sort of scene, and the, I guess you, what they now call urban music. God, I hate that that phrase. But like, which artists and albums were you particularly into? So I've picked three, uh, and it it wasn't actually very hard to pick because, as I said, so much was going on around this time, and. Two people who I've talked about before, uh, Chad Hugo and Pharrell Williams, and they uh, produce under the name The Neptunes. And it comes as no surprise that two of the albums that I've chosen, uh, one is by NSYNC and it's Celebrity, and the other is Britney by Britney. Both of the, my favourite songs on those albums are produced by The Neptunes. So the Britney one, you know, you, pro- you might laugh, you know, it's Britney Spears, right? But this is the album that's sort of, made her grow up a little bit I think um and I'll, I'll still listen to I'm a Slave for You in fact I was kind of walking around town earlier uh, when I was going food shopping listening to this whole album and I was just literally having the best time walking down the street and actually my friend messaged me from uh, from Melbourne earlier and said oh what are you up to Sarah and I just said I happened to be eating some sausages at the time and I said to him I'm just listening to 2001 bangers eating some bangers and uh yeah it was it was perfect timing but and then the other one as well uh is worth mentioning is Aaliyah um and this album came out um on the literally a month before she died in a plane crash um and she just actually she was on the way back from recording a video to rock the boat um when she sadly died in a plane crash which was you know I remember where I was when that happened um I was I was in Harrogate visiting my stepdad's uh stepdad's mum we were walking through a car park when I heard the news and I just sort of like you know, it really got me and really gripped me um mm. but yeah those are those are three artists that were all kind of linked uh, on the layers as well there was another producer at the time um called Timberland and I'm sure you've heard of Timberland right oh, of course yeah of course so he's you know again, one of the, the the all great producers. And I recently watched his masterclass. Uh, I don't know if you know what masterclass is. Do you know what masterclass is, Rick? No, well, I know what a masterclass is, as in this podcast is a masterclass in talking about uh, the bands and scenes we love. But no, in your uh-huh. context, what do you mean by masterclass? Ah, okay. So it's something I think you'd be quite interested in. Um, it's I think it's an, an American startup and they basically get the best people in the world in their fields. And it could be anything from acting to producing to writing to to anything. And I mean the best people in the world in their field. And they put together they've put together kind of video content, which is essentially them giving the viewers a masterclass in their art. Okay. Um, so t- it's, it's absolutely brilliant. You know, it's it's if, if you haven't had a look at it, check it out. I think it only costs about 100 quid a year and. Um, I had I got it for a birthday present last year um, so I watched the Timberland one and I was just in awe like you know because he was just uh, beatboxing 
into the mic in the studio and he kind of built all of his he builds all of his songs around that and just kind of loops it and and builds each kind of track on top of it and then he, he works with an amazing sound engineers to just create these sounds that are just you know fantastic and really unique as well that they're my three what what about you yeah, I mean, I think before I even go into mine, I kind of want to I want to comment on a few things you brought up there. You know, I think Timberland obviously was like the he was a huge producer at the time. Didn't he work with Justin Timberlake on some of his stuff as well? I feel like he was one of the guys that um, made Justin Timberlake cool. Absolutely. Yes. So Justified is one of my favourite albums of all time. And the majority of it was produced by, you guessed it, the Neptunes and also Timberland. Um, and it also features guest appearances from, you know, Janet Jackson. And that's another one that I was going to mention today. She uh, she released All For You in 2001 as well. So it was a really amazing year. But also, I've got a fun fact about this Justified album, if you want to hear it, Rick. Oh, of, of course. I always want to hear a fun fact. So go ahead. So, so as you may know, Justin Timberlake sounds a bit like Michael Jackson, right? In his own way, yeah. In his own way. That album was actually written for Michael Jackson and he turned it down. Wow, I, I never knew that because Michael Jackson, now I think about it, put an album out around 2001, 2002, didn't they? Now, now that you bring it up, I'm going to do a bit of Googling. I'm sure Michael Jackson had an album out around the same time. So maybe that was the one that he rejected in favour of the one that he did put out. You know, the one that had like Rock My World on and stuff like that. Was that 2001 as well? Wow. I mean, I didn't know that. If it wasn't 2001, it was definitely around that time. So I'm just pulling up Michael Jackson discography uh, listeners on uh, on uh, Wikipedia. Invincible, 2001. Yeah, came out oh, in 2001. No hmm, interesting. I mean, I think Justified would definitely have worked with Michael Jackson. Also, another thing that I, I do know as well is that Prince really uh, used to turn, you know, apparently Pharrell and ne the Neptunes, sorry, were always trying to get um, kind of beats in front of Prince and Michael Jackson, both turned him down every time. Gutted. I mean, that would just be, you know, those marrying, I mean, obviously both, you know, Michael Jackson and Prince aren't alive anymore, <laughs> which is a massive shame. So it'll never get to happen. But mm, I think if those collaborations yeah. would have happened, it would have just been insane. No, very much so. Yeah, and I, th I think that kind of ties in what you said about Aaliyah as well. You know, again, I'm not going to sit here and say I was an, an Aaliyah super fan, but what I do remember is she was like a real rising star of, of well, I was going to say the R&B scene, but I'd say more broadly the pop scene. And, um, you know, obviously taken far, far too soon, you know. Yeah, a bit of a weird one with the whole kind of Aaliyah and R. Kelly stuff. I don't know if you've seen or know much about that, uh, but they, yeah, it was a bit of a weird one, but still she was a fantastic artist in her own right so yeah well, I mean I've talked all about R&B Rick uh yours is definitely going to be a bit different because I know we have different music tastes in lots of ways uh so so what were yours yeah so I guess my the music I was listening to in 2001 was much more uh guitar bass and in fact I was the two albums I was going to talk about came out on exactly the same day and this, I think this is often forgotten so obviously the strokes is this it um, was seen as a bit of a year zero for millennial rock and roll. You know, even now when you talk to people um, who uh, remember those days or a lot of the bands that we've spoken to uh, on this podcast kind of cite, you know, when The Strokes is this, it came out, um, everything changed for us. But actually it was knocked off. In fact, it wasn't knocked off the top spot. It was kept off the album's chart top spot that week by none other than metalers, new metalers, Slipknot. Um, and I, I guess for me it was... That was quite a memorable day uh, in terms of record buying because I was actually a fan of both. Like I'm not a big uh, metal fan by by any means. You can count the number of metal 
bands that I would say I was a fan of, probably on on one hand or even half a hand. So I'm not, um, I'm by no means a metaler, but there are certain artists from that world that that I'm I'm quite a big fan of. So yeah, it was Slipknot's Iowa that came out, which is like a, you know it's basically <laughs> sort of remembered as their their greatest work, kind of their career high point. And uh, yeah, obviously the Strokes um kicked off kind of the rock and roll scene and i think um i think when i bought both those and i know you, you're often the one who brings me, you know memories of where you were i think i was on like a family holiday and all i did on that holiday was just listen to those albums um back to back and i suppose the other thing to say is their 20th anniversaries are coming up uh later this year so it'd be interesting to see whether we can find a way to mark uh the 20, 20th anniversary of is this it and the 20th anniversary of uh slipknot's iowa uh, I guess stay tuned to the podcast listeners because we may have one or two uh, trips up our sleeve on that. That would be great, wouldn't it, Rick? But um, another band that you're a really big fan of uh, is Cheer and Break. So I guess if listeners haven't heard of them before, because, you know, we might have some people who are younger than 20 on the on the podcast. So can you just give a bit of a recap as to who they are? Yeah, so I've done my usual thing here, and uh, regular listeners will know that I've got quite into this as a franchise for demo tapes. Because I've done a kind of Kirsty Young style Desert Island Discs intro, you know, the intro she does for uh, the guests that she has on her show, which is clearly sort of pre-prepared and scripted. Well, I say she does. She, she's obviously left Desert Island Discs now, and it's Lauren Laverne, but less said about that, the better. So here's my uh, Turing Breaks uh, sort of intro for this week. So Turing Breaks formed in South London in the late 90s around the core songwriting duo of school friends, Ollie Knights and Gail Paradigian, eventually adding drummer Rob, Rob Allen and bassist Eddie Meyer to the ranks. Known for their brand of timeless indie folk, they were heralded as being at the vanguard of the new acoustic movement scene by the music press in the early 2000s, alongside bands like Coldplay, Travis, Kings of Convenience and I Am Clue. I wonder what happened to some of them. In March, they celebrate the 20th anniversary of their acclaimed 2001 debut album, The Optimist LP, which went gold in the UK and was nominated for the Mercury Prize. The Optimist LP has since been followed by seven further studio albums with an eighth now in the works. How was that? <laughs> You're getting better every time, Rick. It's all good, you know. I, 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 do you know what? I, I sort of had a bit of a giggle when you said new acoustic movement. I really don't like that term. I don't think any of the bands who were tagged with it did. And that's the thing. That's one of the things that I uh, brought up in the interview with Ollie, just to kind of see how he sort of looked back on that. Was it sort of a blessing or a curse? Which is probably a good leading uh to the interview right absolutely so yeah this is my interview with ollie knights recorded uh last week and we'll see you on the other side on the line i've got ollie uh who forms one half of the songwriting powerhouse at the core of during breaks um and we're here to talk about the optimist lp which is uh, 20 years old in March um, and I know artists often think of their sort of our albums a bit like children and this one now is kind of ready to to leave home and, and fly the nest so how does that feel to have an album that's now 20 years old? Yeah it's uh, it's you know it is slightly odd I'm not gonna lie um, it does in some ways it seems still seems very much very much a part of our lives I mean it, it um, I'd say it it is still the kind of the most celebrated thing we've ever done as a band, um, which is in some ways is, you know, absolutely brilliant because having even one hugely celebrated album is like a dream come true for most musicians. Um, but it's also that strange thing of it's the thing that we're known for. It's the one that everyone agreed or not everyone, but a lot of people agreed was sort of, 
a really good record. And, you know, we've been, in, in, in some ways, it's been our sort of best friend for the last 20 years, but we've also, it's, it's also that strange thing of um, everything you do either gets compared to it or kind of gets ignored to a certain extent because it isn't it. And some bands, like some bands get celebrated massively across the spectrum and other bands seem to get like a, a moment of burning very brightly. And then they have, you know, years and years making more stuff, but it's kind of more in a niche. And, uh, we, mm. you know, we, that certainly happened to us. I mean, uh, uh, without sounding at all bitter, because, you know, we, I think we're all pretty realistic about it and know that it's still an absolute blessing. Um, but we do, it is sometimes it can be a little frustrating because, you know, we have, we, we've made about, I think we're about, we're sort of getting, getting on to getting ready to make our ninth album. And I listen to The Optimist and I can, in some ways I can hear what's special about it, but I can also hear very young songwriters. You know, I can hear in, in my own sort of craft, if you like, I can hear clangers, you know, I can hear things that I wouldn't dream of doing now I'd be like I you know real kind of teenage sort of moments and and so it's that funny thing of having to separate yourself and say well actually that's really powerful because that is the thoughts and expressions of a young man uh at the turn of the century and that was kind of, that that was an interesting time but I'm also like just me kind of going oh man I know I know what I'm trying to do there that's terrible like I'd, I'd do that much better now Mm, so it's mm. a weird it's quite strange um but um and 20 years i mean wow you know that is that is absolutely crazy um but but here we are you know here we are 20 years later and i'm really i'm still very very grateful that people are interested in that record and consequently in a little bit in what we're still doing you know on mm, on the yeah. earth and it was birthed in, I guess, a very different world than the one we're in now, you know, both in terms of, I guess, society, but also musically. But I think listening back to it more recently, it's got a timeless quality to it. And is that something you'd agree that mm. although you could argue and we'll come on to later the dreaded new acoustic movement and uh, things like that, but it's actually got more of a timeless quality. And maybe did, did you realize that when you were putting that together at the time that I guess in not chasing a scene, it doesn't yeah. necessarily sound of that moment. It could have come out at any point over the last 20 years, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think that was, um, it was certainly something that, I don't think we we thought, oh, you know, we couldn't obviously have known what was going to happen, but we definitely uh, had conversations about not attaching it to any, too much of a specific moment in time, certainly sonically. So like our production ideas and what we really valued and what we were influenced by were it was that kind of thing of predominantly what was happening in us probably like the late 70s uh, in terms of in terms of technology and music technology that felt even even 20 years ago that that felt very timeless in a in a way because you're it it it, it just kind of has got to that point of maturity at that point in the late 70s where things sounded a certain way and they it it, it, it sort of peaked you know the mm, analog mm. world of recording it had peaked and then and then it and then it's had to start again through the 80s and you had a lot more experimental stuff some of it is absolutely in, insanely amazing and some of it's absolutely terrible um and 
we took a lot of those those sounds and ideas from from the late seventies, from those kind of you know sort of classic um, records that were made at that time, and I think we let the lyrics be a little bit more aware of the twenty first century and and the new century that that we were just in, um, and I think we did used to talk about that idea of of, of something sort of sounding fresh forever you know because we'd already noticed even 20 years ago that that's like I said those those records still seemed to sound fresh and um mm. we didn't we didn't want it to kind of we you know we'd already come through the 90s so we had that that knee-jerk reaction that you have to the decade that's just gone uh, where you really don't want it to sound like that you know we did not want it to sound like a Britpop album yeah. or any anything from the 90s at all we were really like done with that so actually going a few decades earlier and, and uh, into the late 70s at the time was quite exciting. Um, and so we went, that that informed the way we made it. And we went to Conk um, Studios in Crouch End, which is actually owned by Ray Davies of the Kinks. Um, and we ended up in there and that it had a, this fantastic Neve console from, from that sort of time and a 24 track tape machine. It didn't touch Pro Tools, the record, because A, Pro Tools was in its infancy still then, and B, we just didn't have any interest in going down that route. Mm. Um, so there were, yeah, there were there were a lot of things that made it feel timeless. Also, the instruments used, you know, we went for, for, for kind of um, instruments that you didn't place it too much in a time, like it's very acoustic guitar based. You know, the drum kit's a real drum kit. It's all cla- classic, classic kind of late seventies stuff. Um, but occasionally, if you put in a little dro- drop of something from a different time, it sparks off a sort of tension between all those elements, and that used to excite us as well. If there was a subtle little thing that couldn't have existed in those times, mm. um, and 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 I think you know, I think you're right. Like a, I don't listen to it very often because it would drive me mad, but. Uh, the the few times I have sat down and, and really listened to that record, it is always quite amazing how how fresh it sounds. You know, it, it doesn't seem to age at all, um, which is is pretty cool. There's the odd lyric, like I think I sing about mobile phones instead of smartphones. There's probably about mm, one or mm. two one or two moments where you could pin it down, but most of the time, it yeah, it could it could have come out yesterday. I think. I want to go into some more of the lyrical themes and the musical themes a bit later on, but I, I think the best place to start actually is where Turing Breaks came together. And obviously, you are, you know, you're a, you, you seem to stretch to kind of a five piece band live, but the core is obviously yourself and, and Gail. Am I right in thinking that you met at school or certainly in, in your youth? How, and if that's the case, I mean, that's was obviously quite a long gestation between meeting at school and then, and then putting your debut album out. So you can just kind of talk me through how, how the band came together. Uh, yeah, so I met Gail in 1984 uh, in Clapham, in an infant school in Clapham, um, and we became pretty close pretty quickly. I was I was the new boy, like I'd I'd, moved, I'd turned up from another school, and uh, after a couple of months of sort of being on the periphery, uh, I eventually got sort of allowed into Gail's little group of friends, and we immediately had a a I would say we had a strong chemistry you know uh, and we were always 
coming up with absurd ideas or we had a very imaginative relationship and we and we also made each other laugh like like no one else you know we could mm. we sort of could had a special dark humor that we recognized in each other um that we still have now i mean that is a hundred percent what our relationship is mostly based on you know is is a kind of absurd slightly maybe even slightly cruel humor with each other um and that that relationship carried on all the way through we didn't go to the same secondary school went to different secondary schools i went to pimlico um and but we but we maintained our friendship very strongly um and and especially in secondary school we got really into uh guitars and and kind of just going like on friday nights we'd we'd spend a lot of time hanging out in each other's uh, houses with each other and and ex and other friends as well and there was always guitars and you know we'd listen to bands like really lo-fi bands like severdo um mm-hmm. and, and 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 that whole scene from america of you know we loved all that um so like being being able to make music in your kitchen on a four track cassette recorder was was our idea of having a good time like that was how literally how we'd entertain ourselves and sort of by the end of the night you'd have a load of drunken jams you know and i guess eventually i i developed more of a a bit more of a kind of lyrical songwriter mentality with uh, and it, it somewhere it sort of got combined with the music that me and gail were making as well as uh, things I was doing eventually I went to art school and studied film uh, uh, fine art film and video and um, the, the the kind of world of songs and the world of film came together uh, for a few years and that was actually where Turing Breaks was born um, from from actually me getting getting bits and bobs together with Gail for soundtracks uh, for, for, mm. for films mm. I was making um and at the time that you couldn't go on the internet and 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 find a load of library music you know you 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 either had to have friends in bands or make it yourself you know Mm. Uh, and so what that it it was just as simple as that we were like oh i need i need atmospheric music but what happened was i had all this lovely atmospheric music gail playing guitar and us jamming and stuff and i couldn't help but end up singing things on it you know i couldn't help but write poetry and sing sing over it and almost immediately uh we we came up with a song called the door which was ended up being the key to 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 the whole sort of next stage of of what during breaks was and then once once we actually ended up signing a record deal which was totally out of the blue and not um not really our focus in the slightest um it was after just after that that we met Rob, uh, our, who is our drummer, um, and Ed, who is our bass player, and we've 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 they've been our main band and musicians and these days co-songwriters uh, for the last twenty years. So it's that's mm. kind of a, a loose, uh, you know, um, map of how it all works out. And it's interesting that you say you met in, you know, you grew up in South London, you met there, because I think there's always been a healthy creative scene in in South London, not necessarily one whole scene. I think it, it comes up in pockets, like at the moment, kind of around sort of Peckham area, you've got Fat White Family, Shame, you know, you had the kind of Thames Beat scene at one point, with like Mystery Jets, which is more kind of the Twickenham sort of side of things. And I guess when you were coming through, and it was like Balham, Streatham, my understanding is kind of where you, you were sort of growing up, was... 
was there that kind of fertile creative scene or actually is what you were doing is what you're doing kind of in contrast to what you were seeing around you you know were you the the two kids at school who you know admittedly in different schools that were jamming on a friday because everyone else was out doing other things like how how how, how did that kind of come together yeah i mean i think um it's a funny one with cheering breaks we've always we we, we really are quite outside uh, it, we've never you know we've always been our own little scene uh, and I, I I can see how other bands sometimes are born out of scenes of like loads of bands all kind of clubbing together and crossing each other's paths we actually were in it almost felt like total isolation from any other we didn't know any other bands or, or we, we'd go and see bands but we didn't know them and we didn't really cross paths with that many other bands at all uh, it just seemed to be something that we that was our thing it, it was just something we did and we and we seemed to make um a very specific sort of sound together um and and it really was it was just entertainment for us you know that was the, it, it, out of boredom really we'd we'd there was nothing more fun and magical than making a song you know like or making a piece of music and tracking it up on a four track uh, it was the most fun thing you could do, and you'd go home absolutely buzzing, you know. Mm. So that was that was kind of where where it was born from, more than a more than a scene. I mean, having said that, I mean, yeah, it was Balam in the, I suppose in the late nineties at that point, mid to late nineties, um, was kind of where I lived, and Gail lived just up the road in Clapham, um, and there were there were there was a lot of scenes, there was a lot of energy for sure, but it was actually there was a lot of comedians and stuff coming from from that sort of part of London I remember um and I don't remember so much of a music scene at that time um but like I said it we didn't we didn't really have that dream of being a band or that dream of signing a record deal it never it, we might have had that when we were really young but by the time mm. we were sort of in our in our teens and and a little bit later that was not something we fantasized about at all uh in fact i think we kind of recognized that in some ways that would be the death of 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 the fun you know and that would and that could just kill our special thing mm. so we so we never we never talked about it. but um and so when we got like when we got a phone call from a from a guy who just started a label and suddenly was interested in this cassette that he'd happened to hear from a friend who was playing it in her car it was all very random and un unplanned and we we'd never we'd never even played a gig you know we'd never played in front of anyone or had any desire to do so uh, so it's like the music kind of went out and had this life and got us involved with it rather than us pushing it yeah, um, that's interesting because yeah. it's usually the live circuit that bands, particularly in those days, before you know even social media, early social media like MySpace um, came about. That was the way to get noticed, wasn't it? To was to, was to build your okay. following live, and then eventually word gets back to a label and someone comes down. So it's interesting that you did that. The live thing, by the sounds of it, came came secondary to that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, um, I can I can really see how we've we've sort of done things in reverse in some ways. Um, but yeah, it was, it was funny. We, we, we made the music for the, just for the hell of making it and for the love of making it. And that really did go out and get us into a lot of trouble. If you know mm. what I mean? Uh, um, 
and we 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 suddenly found like people just think I I think that it was partly timing and partly luck and all sorts of things that made what we were doing at that time very seem to be very exciting to people I mean there was a real post dance hunger for or post sort of dance music hunger for songwriting again I really remember that you know around that time around 2000 99 to 2000 people just love they couldn't get enough of hearing what they considered to be kind of classic songwriting mm. but being but but being made anew by these two young people and it was like that you know people like Simon and Garfunkel and the Everly Brothers and things they they got talked about a lot and people you know, often said, you guys are like a kind of modern 21st century version of these, of those guys. And to us, it was, it was like, oh, cool. Okay. You know, that's, that's great. Excellent. But we didn't, we had absolutely no interest in driving that idea ourselves. We were just being driven to make this music and that was it. And, and actually the, the more, the more um, we tried to live up to, some sort of external idea the weirder it got and the further away it all kind of got um so yeah it was interesting i i am really aware that we i sometimes feel like we were uh, we almost cheated because we we didn't necessarily pay our dues in on the live scene first which i know is much more the tradition mm. um having said that we sure as hell paid our dues after we signed a record deal because we had to we had to work twice as hard to get up to speed and then to be able to convince anyone that we were worth it or any good, you know? Uh, so we worked really, really hard later um, and had to kind of become a live band in front of an audience. Like we, we didn't have any time to develop that side of it. We literally had to hit the ground running mm. and be really, and be good. You know, we didn't have a chance to not be, if we weren't good, it was all going to kind of, it wasn't going to be credible. You know, it was like, okay, you've got the record part of it and that's really cool. But how do you present that live? You know, can mm. you be the same thing? So we had to find that within ourselves. And I remember it was actually really, it was exciting, but it was kind of stressful because it was like, whoa, I, I have not been dreaming about being on a stage and singing in front of people for half my life. This is not mm. something I'd even really considered doing particularly. Um, so we, and we all had our little moments of like trepidation and having to find that within us. Um, but you know, again, where there's a will, there's a way and necessity is the mother invention. And we, we kind of had the, the live part of the bands kind of forced out of us with, with just the pressure of, of signing a record deal and suddenly being out there in the world, you know. But I think uh, that lended you authenticity as well. Although I think... When you think about uh, probably, and we're going to we use those dreaded words in a minute, new acoustic movement thing came around. You know, I think it was both a blessing and a curse for you that you weren't a novelty act. It was a very authentic act based on, like you say, a classic songwriting tradition. But when I think you emerged, there was this interesting thing going on with kind of the pro Britpop kind of hangover, the Strokes and the Libertines emerging, and then, like you say, a, a much more authentic and cr your kind of credible kind of songwriting, I guess. 
So I guess, how did you feel about when you emerged? And there was all there was quite a lot of noise going on in the indie scene, in the British music scene at the time, and talk of kind of what the Strokes were here to destroy, the Strokes are here to to kick out all those kind of you know acoustic bands. Mm-hmm. Actually, a lot of them didn't have a lot in common with each other. So when you emerged, you know, your first few reviews came out, or you know, your first couple of records, then Enemy slapped this tag of new acoustic movement on yourself, Kings of Convenience probably lumping Travis in with that a little bit, Coldplay, because Chris happened to play an acoustic guitar on a couple of their songs. Like, how did you feel about that at the time? And maybe now, how do you reflect on it now? Yeah, I I think I dealt with that uh, with a very kind of keen, young, um, innocent mindset, which was, I didn't, I, I, people around me were more afraid of it than I was. You know, I, I wasn't half as suspicious um, of that whole thing as maybe I should have been, and certainly as other bands were. I remember we knew a little bit. We knew uh, Johnny Bramwell from I Am Clute, who were also, uh, you know, an absolutely brilliant band, but they were kind of lumped into that new acoustic movement. And he was, I remember, he was massively cynical about it and kind of really pissed off that it had, it, mm. it had happened. And I was just kind of scratching my head and looking at him going, well, why, what's the problem? It's okay, isn't it? I mean, I, 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 I didn't really see where it could go. But I, again, I hadn't particularly grown up reading music press. I wasn't like a bandy person. I wasn't like obsessed with that culture at that time. So mm. I didn't, I probably didn't see the warning signs in some ways that, that, that you know, being put in a box can, can have its advantages, but it can also be a, an absolute nightmare you can you can be you know you can drown in that box uh, pretty quickly as well um so at the at, at first i was totally open to it and like oh okay you think we're in a scene but i didn't believe it i didn't think yeah yeah we're all in this scene together with these other guys because we'd never been in a scene that was the whole point of cheering breaks was we just were always mm. outside of everything we just had our own bubble and that was that was it and we didn't even particularly try to be like anything you know we just wanted to carry on being us and um so it was just I was kind of slightly bemused but but innocent at the time and it wasn't mm. the year you know years later I sort of realized oh okay yeah we really were kind of marketed in a particular way that was only you know one sliver of of of, of what was really going on um mm. But, at the, you know, I'm very philosophical about it as well. It's like, well, everyone needs a hook. You know, I get it. I get it. I get why that was needed. I get why people needed to sum us up quickly. And, you know, would I even change it? I don't know. I don't know because we, you know, I'm, I, I feel like it worked out well enough. I, I appreciate the fact that we still have a really strong audience even now I mean it's not obviously it's not as big as it as it once was but it's it's um it's really kind of interested in what we're doing still and I wouldn't give that up for anything you know if you're if you're an artist in any in of any kind and you can and you can have an an interested audience you are you are very very lucky Mm, mm. one of the things I'm interested to know is you know when that, I guess, when the scene that came that was was supposed to be a reaction to it, you know, the garage rock scene, the new rock revolution came in, and you had people like Alan McGee and Liam Gallagher, you know, claiming that this was a far more rock and roll scene than what had come before. But actually, I suppose, working on as a music journalist myself at the time, 
I know a lot of those bands lumped him in the acoustic movement, could drink anyone else under the table, could, you know, it was far more debauched behind the scenes than maybe the, the cartoon that was put forward. And I guess, you know, Turing Breaks, you were young guys finding success. So was it more debauched in and rock and roll <laughs> than than maybe the um than the character might you know the the cartoon might have been played in the music press i mean of course you know like you, you you've hit the nail on the head we were young you know we were 21 22 years old we it it, it was like being strapped to the front of a missile or something you know that's what it felt like um and you know there was a lot of free booze and very interesting people and that would cross paths with with us on a daily basis and and yeah you're damn right it was it was debauched <laughs> it was absolutely but and it was funny because we, it was we were marketed again we were sort of marketed as these kind of almost like choir boys you know like mm, ange mm. angelic acoustic kids you know um which which was hilarious but you know and there, I guess there was that slight sometimes there was a frustration and you did think man you know should we behave differently should we behave more obviously like um rock and roll to kind of counteract this stuff and really let people in to see look this is just as mad and circus like and grimy and there's just as much you know mayhem going on here as there is in 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 um any of these other bands sort of touring lives that is that, that are marketed just more in a more rock and roll fashion don't you you know it was kind of funny to see it all but luckily as well i think we we knew that in a way we, we things were kind of okay as they were like we didn't have we knew that if you let people in to too much that would also be a disaster and could destroy us so but it it was funny because you know we did used to laugh because yeah there was I mean I, I'm not going to get too into it but there was a lot of mayhem at that time as you as the of course there would be you know we were a group of young men mm. flying flying around the world you know you can imagine what that's like it, it was very exciting and lots of emotion um, and yeah, there's, we were, it was just as mad as anyone else. And it did used to make us laugh that you'd have like the the, the enemy would seem to seem to box these people in and like, oh well, you're not like that because you're like this and you're you're like this because and it was just behind the scene. And especially when these bands met, which inevitably they did, you know, at festivals especially with crossbow, everyone knew it was total bullshit. You know, every mm, everyone. Mm. It was it was hilarious, and really, you'd just be you'd just all actually be very similar because you would all young people, you know, men and 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 young men and young women, uh, all all just making their music, and usually, eventually, the you know uh, the the posturing would go away, and you'd end up you know you'd end up kind of bonding with people who who you weren't even supposed to because you know you're in different genres you know yeah 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 uh, so you'd see a lot of that and and really it was it i guess it taught me that there is there's marketing and then there's reality and the, the two things can be massively different mm. and i think the flip side is often some of those bands that were marketed as being <laughs> as where it was was supposed to be utter mayhem they'd finish the gig you know jump in the car and off off and home they go that's not necessarily yes, the story totally. that you would read, you know. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and 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 I, I actually, I kind of dig that. I mean, I've got a funny one about Dave. I, I know somebody that um, worked a little bit with Dave Grohl years ago, and she um, she said it was really funny because he he made sure that he had a glass of whatever in his hand, like some sort. He always had a glass of some sort of um, whiskey or whatever it was, some sort of spirit in his hand at all times. Um, but he barely drank, he barely sipped it, and he mm. went home mm. that night completely, completely sober, and got up the next day and got his plane, and everything was fine. And you know, and it, and I got that straight. I was like, yeah, of course he does, because he'd be dead otherwise, you know. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, and <laughs> you know, it is just he he know you know he's Dave Grohl. He knows what he's got to do. He knows what the job entails, and he's got to live up to a certain level. And it literally is just a case of, okay, got my drink, got my leather jacket on yeah i'm gonna say this i'm gonna be like this and then job done and then i can just go home to bed you know um that happens a lot there you know of course it's not always like that they really are debauched people but that's usually because they're just addicts you know mm. they're just addicts mm. and they're being given free free drugs and you know you can imagine the rest yeah and we, we, all, we all know the names of, of kind of who you're referring to and some of them some of them are sadly not with us and then you've got others like Pete Doherty who gets a mention on this podcast fairly regularly for you know almost cheating medical science I suppose through uh through through some of his life choices yeah 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 unless he's just doing an incredible cover you know you mm. never know he's, mm. maybe he's just the most no I'm only kidding obviously <laughs> it's completely obvious but um yeah, you know, it's 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 a fascinating sort of circus. It really is. So, as much as I love a tale of uh, rock and roll destruction, I do want to bring it back to the music uh, for a minute, and particularly talking, you know, about the Optimist and and some of the music and some of the lyrics um, on there. And I think we were mentioning earlier, you know, that when it was produced and when it was birthed, and you know, you were the lyricist as well. You know, it was that kind of turn of the millennium uh, time, and I think a lot of people were thinking about the growth of technology, what what the future was going to look like. Was it going to look like the Jetsons that promise, you know, 20, 30 years before or not? And, there's, and obviously a lot of your lyrics have themes around, you know, uh, cyborgs, you know, boys from the future, starships, lonely planets. But also it's quite wistful and nostalgic. So for me, it kind of looks backwards and also looks forwards at the same time. Was that Was that a conscious thing that you did with the lyrics to try and be at that kind of crossroads of past and future? Um, it wasn't exactly conscious. It, I think that was just, that was the way, it, it was a combination of sort of um, nature and nurture, I suppose. It, it was certainly, that's the way I've always been a bit cosmic. I can't, I can't help it, you know. But I, I always loved the weird massiveness of being a bit cosmic, but also combined with the sort of oddness of also just being some, nobody from Balham do you know what I mean and the two the kind of giantness in some ways but also the also the domestic and and the kind of sort of oddness in 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 um, the mundanity you know and the, the weird magic of the mundane so I was always interested in those kind of massive contrasts of sort of hyper imagination and you know space and and time and all the surreal language that c can come out of that mixed with you know just being just being a a very standard young man wandering around southwest london you know and mm, and i mm. think during breaks 
especially that record, really uh, did manage to express that. Uh, and 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 in that time as well, like you said, like it was, you know, we just had the, like the millennium bug. Do you remember that? Everyone thought aeroplanes were going to fall out of the sky. And... I was just thinking the exact same phrase as you've just said there, actually. Yeah, <laughs> and how how that now feels so small fry compared to what the world is actually dealing with now. But at the time, yeah, the millennium bug was the thing, wasn't it? Yeah, that people were worried I mean, about, was, you know. Yeah, there was there was a lot of conspiracy and all sorts of all, all sorts of worry at the time. Um, and it, but what was wonderful about the Millennium Bug was the the one second after midnight on the first of um, January, the, in the year two thousand, you couldn't. It, it was gone. The the theory was finished. You know, you, yeah. everyone shut up, shut up, and moved on because it was it was over. You couldn't carry it on. Now. I think in 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 these times things you can it's this horrible almost sickening thud when you realize that things are just being spun you know all these these the same similar kind of fears and conspiracies and all the confusion but it just gets spun out and spun out and spun out there there, there isn't a, a sort of end it's like it just keeps going and that's 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 what it feels that's that's how it feels to me now compared to before where it things things seem to have an end to them you know and you could move on eventually whereas um it feels a bit like at the moment things are just spiraling and spiraling you know mm, uh, mm. i don't i don't know if that's really true but it, it definitely feels like it is and, and obviously fertile ground for songwriters i imagine as well a lot of that one of my favorite uh songs on the album is emergency 72 um and uh you know i think it's got that real classic sound that we were kind of talking about before but from a lyrical point of view it's taken me 20 years 20 years of listening to this to realise what Emergency 72 is actually about. It's actually about yeah. emergency contraception and the 72-hour window for... Um... So can you, just, can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So um, it was, I suppose, just on a personal level, it was it was the first time first time I'd ever sort of experienced going through that with, with a, a girlfriend at the time. And it was all, again, very much innocence breaky. It was like the... F- you know that whole record was about falling in love for the first time, having your heart broken for the first time, all those all those moments happening for the first time, and all the kind of poetry that comes out of those moments. And n- there's nothing like it. Like the first time those things happen to you, mm. they you feel them the most, you know, and they they really spark off a lot of poetry. Um, and so so that you know that 72 hour thing felt very poetic and dark and romantic to be to be in you know to go through mm. when you're when you're with someone who you're sort of probably in madly in love with and um to go through the intenseness of that and sort of deciding okay we're far too young to get into this we've you know we, you've got to go and get emergency contraception and i'm going to be this kind of useless lump next to you who who's feeling it all but can't actually do anything about it and I'm gonna be mm. and it's gonna push all push all of my buttons and it's certainly gonna push all of yours. Uh there's so much poetry in that situation and I really felt it at the time. So uh what what that song came out as is a sort of in the end a post breakup sort of song about that time. And um mm. I always like I always like taking things and and turning them into better things so like if you've got a situation that that broke your heart the best thing you could do with that is is turn it into a piece of art you know turn it into a a slow motion disco 
song mm. called Emergency mm. Emergency Seventy Two. You know, um, and that's so that's what we did. And I, I that's one of my favourite songs on that record. And I think we talked a lot about um, it feeling like a kind of somebody almost in a late seventies disco, but it's kind of a bit warped and a bit slower. Uh, and a bit, mm. it's all kind of in slow motion, you know. Um, and we got that across, I think, in the production, and uh, with very, very little talking about it. We just had a couple of very loose conceptual conversations, and then just went for it, and it came out. Andy Newmark on the drums at the time uh, did a really good job getting that kind of seventies disco funk. Uh, I was going to say, think... per- percussively, it's re- percussively. Is that how you say it? Percussively, <laughs> percussively. Is how it sounds seventies to me. It's got it's got you know that yeah. slow disco vibe to it. Yeah, totally, totally. And 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 I think the drums, the drums are really important across the whole record. But in that song, it's a really good example of how you can, you can kind of sum up a concept even just literally how how the drums are being played and how they sound. You know. And I was rereading the the enemy review that I think was actually what probably turned me onto the album back in the day. And I thought it was a really nice line in that that said it was. It's music for the twilight hours, and it's like dust bowl folk refracted through inner city noise. And I think from what you're saying, what you've been saying here, I think that particularly that dust bowl folk refracted through inner city, which is obviously where you you grew up, kind of makes sense. What do you think about that music for the twilight hours? It's almost got, I think there's almost seasons for this album, whereas I think some of your later albums, Ether Song, for example, I think is a very summer album. You know, the Optimist LP is much more of an autumnal winter sort of sounding album yeah. to me would, would you agree yeah i think of it almost like a sonic fire you know that's that's what that that, that the optimist is like that same feeling of, of of setting up a little fire in your front room or whatever you know and it's very warm and uh it's it's very it pulls you right in and it's very close it's whispering in your ear most of the time the optimist mm. lp whereas ether song's much much showing off a hell of a lot more and it's really making a, a lot of noise um so uh yeah i, I and it's funny i think I, I think i remember that enemy review and they at that time it felt like they they yeah they sussed it they they saw it they could see it as well you know they could really see what it was at that point um and it was a lovely moment where for us it was like oh they really get it this is really nice and and it, for a for a little while it was so lovely because you know it was like not only were we able to put something out and put a record out which is a dream in itself mm. uh, it was also it was also being understood and and uh, in a big way and uh, it was a it was such a a lovely thing to experience uh, what happened later of course is things get bigger uh and um cynicism creeps in and you know you don't you don't get understood in the same way or you don't you, you know you get misread or whatever uh so it, it it wasn't like that all the time for us but looking back i can see what a what a lovely moment of zeitgeist that was you know where where it all just came together mm. and it was mercury nominated and it and it it kind of was like a slow burn success in terms of sales getting gold sales and then that led you to ether song which i think was more of an immediate commercial hit you know you went top 5 with that album painkiller which i think is possibly your best known song when i speak when i mention your name to people even my partner who's not probably wasn't as big into music at that time but i say during break she says painkiller i know i know that song so can you talk about what it was like kind of transitioning into 
that phase. And I guess the sense I got from the outside was that the stakes were raised quite significantly by the mm. label. And the, I almost felt like the label struggled to know how to promote what you were doing. That was the sense I kind, yeah. of, I kind of got. Yeah, I, I think you're right. You know, I think there was a lot of ideas and imagination and concepts going on with Cheer Break. And I think we were almost too much to handle for the label it was like they wanted to, to reduce us down to something that they could they could understand and they could sell uh so there was it was difficult because we were in some ways we were we were trying to be true to the you know our inner voices uh and the music that was coming out of us but we were also you know we were we were kind of trying to be true to the people that had signed us and that had put their faith in us you know we, we respected them and they were our friends at the, by this stage um and we wanted to you know we wanted to get it right for everyone suddenly suddenly we'd be, you know we were two guys in a bedroom literally two years earlier next thing we we have a team of people you know around us and who need us to do well you know that's mm. really what it felt like um and there was an incredible pressure we went from truly zero to a hundred and um you know, I look back and I think I, I'm surprised we handled it as well as we did. I mean, we were young. We were like 23 years old, I think, by that stage. And the pressure we were under was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. Um, and I'm amazed that we came through it as well as we did, you know. Um, but uh, it was, you're, I think you're, what you were saying earlier, you could see there was, you could see a kind of tension, a kind of, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily plain sailing and it it really was you know um but actually looking back and listening back i think we still managed to make a really strong record you know mm. and it could have mm. it could have just been such a disaster that that you know we could have we could have lost it completely and it was not easy to get to eat the song we'd made a number of attempts to make that record between the optimist and ether song that, that had failed uh, because we you know, we couldn't kind of we we really didn't want to make the optimist part two, um, because that just felt like death doing something like that. And we had a lot more to say and a lot more in us. Um, so we we kind of struggled to get to the point where we'd made Ether Song, but we could, like like all kind of good art, we we broke through eventually, and it was very mm. difficult. Um, and and I'm really proud of Ether Song, you know, because it could have been a disaster. But actually, I think it's a good, it's a really good record. It's really, you know, it's re really got a character and it's really true to itself. And you can really hear the progression, certainly musically, but I think lyrically and everything as well. Um, uh, and and uh, yeah, so so I, I really looking back, I'm kind of, I think it was it was all right, you know, it worked out pretty well with Ether Song. Um, but I think the marketing side of it and uh, we weren't born to be we weren't sort of born to be pop stars we weren't really born to be like what the label needed us to be i think um mm. i can really see that you know uh and it so it was a difficult fit it was a really difficult fit for us um and i think probably we somewhat consciously after ether song decided to take a bit of a left turn in in some ways and you know not 
just keep trying to get bigger and bigger and bigger because yeah it it seemed really obvious that that would it wouldn't work it just wouldn't work for us just on a personal level i don't think we'd have been able to cope with that so we did somewhat consciously take a step back and i just feel like we turned left somehow <laughs> instead of going straight um after that um and i think that's one of the reasons why we're still together and making music 20 years later and that's what i was going to ask you about actually because you're right you know a lot of bands would have cracked i think under the the pressure of what happened with that you know with 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 the second album and i think maybe it was that that core of the friendship between yourself and gail that probably you know kept that together but then as you say from then you know you've released a further five six albums actually since mm. ether song by my, my my terrible maths and you know you regularly release music you've clearly got a strong following because each of your albums either goes top 40 or maybe just goes outside the top 40 so there's clearly that momentum and there's that motivation to to yeah. keep making music but what what do you think it is that you know other than the the core of your friendship with gail that's kept you releasing music pretty pretty regularly over the last 20 years yeah um i mean i think it really does come down to just getting out of bed and writing a bloody song you know it, it, it's like it is totally inside it's particularly inside me to do that i think gail's Gail's sort of, he, he does write songs, Gail, but he doesn't write as many and he's, he, he has a slightly different role in, in the creative side of it. Uh, he, he tends to sort of put, you know, build stuff on top of what I, what I uh, um, come up with in the first place. It tends to work more that way around. Um, but for me, I, I, I kind of, I go through fits of creativity every, every year, you know, I can't help but make stuff um mm, mm. i mean i, I can't i think my my whole family's a bit like that my mum's like that my dad's like that they're all they're all artists of some sort and um and my sister is and my stepmom is you know everyone is sort of involved in the arts be it be it in a small way or a bigger way everyone makes stuff and i think um i mean i was talking to my mum the other day and she was saying as long as she's got something on the workbench everything's fine she is as happy as any she's as positive as anything about life you won't find a more positive person mm. as long as long as there's something on the workbench and i'm i'm exactly the same um it's the times when i'm not dreaming up the next thing that's when i'm in trouble that's when mm. that's when mm. I, that's when i oh yeah i don't like that so but everything's fine as long as as long as there's something on the go, um, and that te because of that I can't help but but collect up a load of songs every year, and because we because I have a very strong relationship. I mean, we've we've I'd say we're almost more than brothers at this point, me and Gail. You know, I, it's beyond the friendship somehow. It's some something else, um, and also because I still love Ro uh, Rob and Ed. Our, our our drummer and our bass player so much it's because we're all there and so we still like each other and we're still in each other's heads and, and we make each other laugh well that's where this music goes and, and 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 we're lucky that everyone's kind of managed to set themselves up in a way to be able to you know once these collections of songs are, 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 there's enough of them everyone's still around and up for making this stuff because it's what everyone everyone loves to do um in this band you know and it's really it's, it's as simple as that it's just it, it comes down to just um 
I keep writing stuff and they're, and they're still up for, for, for working on it. And, um, it's, it's really simple and, and it's just, you know, as long as you don't fall out and, and you respect the basics of that, there's no reason why you can't carry on for decades, you know. Mm. It's interesting you say that because I know that the last thing you worked on was more of a collaborative piece, Lounge at the ed- Edge of Town. Um, yeah. With, is, 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 it, is it Phil Ramekin who has collaborated with Talk Talk, who I know you guys are, are a big fan of and is more of a subtle influence on some of Turing Breaks songs as well. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how that came together? And, and it's a slightly different sound. It's slightly more, when I say fun, that doesn't mean Turing Breaks isn't fun, but it sounds like more of a a relaxed kind of fun collaboration that you guys had going on. So how, how did that come about? Yeah, I think you're, you're totally right there. Um, Phil Ramacon, uh, he's a brilliant um, keyboard player, piano player, uh, musician in general. And he's been around for a, a long time. He, he's worked with bands like Talk Talk, but he was also in the Wailers of Bob Marley and the Wailers. I mean, he, and he played mm. with Jimmy Cliff and, you know he's been he's he's seen truly seen it all and and has been there you know it, it most of most massive um kind of cultural musical events if you re, if you ask phil he's usually he's usually been there you know he was usually on stage at the time and um so so he's a guy that we really loved talking to and we met him a couple of times at, at various talk talk tribute things and the mark hollis tribute thing and gail just one day said to him, oh, you should, you know, you should just come around and, and, and mess about. We'll, we'll write a song, see what, see what happens. And Phil being, you know, super, the super dynamic, positive guy that he is, of course, was just immediately up for it and did turn up and we did write a song together. Um, and it was, it was great and really good fun. And, and we very quickly decided that we had to make a record um, and, we wrote nine or 10 songs in the space of nine or 10 days, you know, mm, mm. every time we got together, there was another really great bit of work came out of it. Um, and it was just one of those brilliant things where the magic was there. Phil would get on the piano and within 10 minutes, we, we were just buzzing and had a really great hook or, or, or I'd, I'd write like an entire song in 10 minutes. You know, it was just all coming out. And uh, and Gail was buzzing because he was hearing all these chords and sort of musical ideas coming from Phil that he, were totally fresh and coming from another place. So he was really buzzing. Uh, and so yeah, and we we made this this kind of side project in the end called Lounge at the End of Ta- Loud Lounge at the End of Edge of Town. I should learn to say it properly. It's a hell of a mouthful. Um, it's easy and, to get wrong. Like, put it like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, like all things that we do, it's it's like I can see it's a, in some ways it's a bit of a head scratcher because it's like, who are these guys? Who is is this cheering breaks? Is it not cheering? What is this? You know, and and we're always doing things that don't necessarily make masses of sense um, upon first viewing. <laughs> you know, um, but. We, what we did was we just we just went off and made this really fun, really great record with each other and and Phil and we got, you know, we got Ed and Rob to do it as well and we just said look let's just get band cheering breaks together and with Phil and, and make this thing, and it ended up being this kind of, yes yeah, it's, it's almost it's got elements of like it's almost like an easy listening record in some ways there's a lot of lounginess in there, um, but there's other things as well that crept in that were really exciting. It gets pretty, it gets very epic 
in places and we and you can sort of hear in the recording how much fun we're having with it was just a a cheap quick record you know and we made it in a week literally five mm. days i think it took us which is abs absurdly quick uh and we just set up pretty much live and went for it and and uh i had a lot of fun sort of pretending to be a a kind of um broken lounge singer you know <laughs> and and uh yeah, it's just, I don't know what's going to happen with it because we put it out right in the middle of the first lockdown because we could see that um, in some ways that was an opportunity for, for people to take, uh, for for Turin Breaks fans at least, to, to listen to it um, maybe a bit more closely than maybe they would have done had life all been kicking off at 100 miles an hour like, like it had been before. Um, but it also was, it also feels like at the moment a little bit of a strangely lost record because we we put it out on on streaming and uh, haven't been able to sort of particularly support it or do anything with it mm. uh but i think we will because it, it we love it and and it it it's too kind of good to to forget about so i think um you know we will do something uh with that as well as you know doing the 20th anniversary gigs for the optimist and hopefully making a ninth cheering breaks album so there's there's a lot there's a lot on the workbench. Let's, let's mm. put it that way. Yeah, I was, I was going to round things off there by asking just about that. You know, you've got the you're hoping to get out on the road this year to to celebrate the Optimist LP, and I believe you're reissuing it as well. So, I mean, I guess plans are quite up in the air at the moment, aren't they? I guess you can put plans in, but whether they sort of come to fruition. So, what order are you doing things in? Will the will going out on the road delay a, another touring breaks album, or is that kind of fully is that fully underway at the moment? Man, you are, you know, you're asking me the big questions here. Uh, it's, it's, it's like completely up in the air. I mean, we, every time we try, we sort of send a few emails to each other about, about um, the next year and breaks album, get a little bit of momentum and then COVID comes and <laughs> smashes the whole thing apart again. Um, we were meant to make the, 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 the ninth year and breaks album a, a, almost a year ago. We, we were going to get together in June to do it. Um, and obviously that was completely off. Um, so we, we, it's kind of given us a bit of time to reflect on the songs and write a few more. So it has, the next Tune Breaks album has changed possibly a little bit mm. uh, in some ways, which is great because uh, you don't normally get that reflection time. So we've really appreciated it. Um, but I think the general gist is to get this Optimist uh, 20th anniversary tour done as well as we can and 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 get this get the record back out there because um you know there's hardly any vinyl of that record around anymore and we we just we we get asked about that constantly when's it coming on vinyl when's it coming on vinyl because i think it goes for there's like five copies going for absurd money on ebay or something and that's mm, about it now. Mm. um so you know we want to do that and we want to do that right because yeah it, it's still really important for us and for for the fan base um and then i think there'll be another cheering breaks album but hopefully in amongst that we'll get to put um the lounge record out on vinyl as well um at some point next year hopefully as well so yeah they, they, i can't say what the order is going to be because who the hell knows but we're we're certainly chomping at the bit to kind of get going again uh, and I, I mean, and we just want to, we just want to hang out with each other as well. It's been like, we haven't actually all been in the same room together for coming up to a year, which is wow. absolutely 
absolutely crazy um, for us. We've seen each other separately, but we just haven't all been together. Um, and uh, I, yeah, uh, which I can't, I, I find almost amazing that it has been almost a year. So we need, we really do need to um, get together again and, and kind of get things going. But, uh, you know, fingers crossed, fingers crossed that those gigs at the end of this year can happen. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm keeping everything crossed that, that those gigs happen. I can't wait to come out and, 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 you know, hear the album played live to get played live again. And, and, you know, everyone else getting to kind of celebrate the 20th anniversary, but yeah, time has got the better of us here. Um, but yeah, thanks very much for joining us today. And yeah, looking forward to hearing the new Turing Breaks album as well. I'm sure fans are too. Oh, anytime. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thanks Ollie. Take care. Stay safe. Speak soon. So the one thing I picked up on there, Rick, which was uh, which was quite fun, I think, um, and and good to know, was uh, they seemed to be a bit more debauched than the image that they portrayed might have suggested, right? Well, I think it was more the image that the music press had of them, and you know, of them being kind of the nice boys of uh, of indie rock. And yeah, I guess having been a music journalist. Uh, a little a little time after the you know the release of their debut album and certainly when they're around you know it's certainly true sometimes the uh some of the naughtiest boys and girls are the ones that you completely wouldn't expect yeah and i i, I was trying to have a think about other bands that i thought might have this sort same sort of image i don't know maybe franz ferdinand maybe because they they definitely didn't seem like party people but i reckon they probably were and behind the scenes um but they didn't sort of build their brand on 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 partying do you think do you agree with me on that one yeah and i, I think it's a difficult one to, to consider isn't it because there's the public image that's talked about in kind of interviews and there's the reality of kind of what goes on backstage and i guess what we both know is there are some bands that definitely sold themselves on being far more debauched than they ever were and then there's also the ones that i think just hid it quite well right who you know didn't bang on about in interviews and you know maybe kept their counsel um in terms of you know off stage and backstage so i guess fans never really got an insight into that in a way that maybe these days you would because social media you know people with camera phones things like that it was much easier to get away with i guess in those days to be you know a secret hedonist maybe than it would be now where you know the spotlight is kind of firmly trained on on bands isn't it yeah i mean you could definitely hide hide things in those days because as you said there's no camera phones i remember actually on the topic of cameras the, the amount of cameras i used to break <laughs> taking to gigs my stepdad at the time was you know going insane because every time i'd come back from from a gig I'd, I'd have either lost or broken a camera it'd be stamped on and it was almost a running joke in my family that um that i'd i'd get a new camera and uh, ruin it at a gig I think what else came out of that interview for me that, uh, that that sort of made me think a little bit, and you know, and we said at the top of the show we want to make this podcast as much of a COVID and lockdown-free zone as possible. I mean, unless something relating to that comes up that that's a key discussion point. And the fact that he said that the members of Turing Breaks actually haven't been in the same room uh, because they don't live together, and you know, social distancing restrictions and so, stuff like that. You know, for a whole for sort of a whole year, and it's it's maybe something that you don't necessarily realize isn't it that the restrictions have meant that that bands can't get together and jam and demo and and i'm sure they can record remotely but it's uh, the sense i get is often that's not quite the same i think it's a novelty sometimes where you know bands record albums in four corners of the earth and then bring it together but most musicians the best way they create is through collaboration isn't it 
Yeah, and I think the word jam resonates there because I don't think you can jam over Zoom. I think you can record over Zoom, or not Zoom, but you can record over the internet for sure. But uh, you definitely can't. Um, you definitely can't jam because you can't really hear properly, can you? Even talking, you know, I've I've been doing a, a personal training session with my mate who's just qualified, and even that sometimes is quite difficult because she, you know, you both talk at the same time and go what? Huh? And I can imagine playing instruments; it's just impossible. Mm, no, absolutely and I guess with Turing breaks I suppose the the other element of this that came up for me was you know they're, they're looking at recording another album and they've got quite a rabid um, sort of cult fan base who I think are, are itching for info so I hope they're kind of you know pleased that we managed to get a bit of that info about the new album but they've actually got an album they recorded and released last year called Lounge at the Edge of Town which is like a side project with some other musicians that they haven't really had a chance to promote that's the other thing isn't it if bands have brought out albums during this period you know maybe that were recorded before lockdown came in you know maybe recorded at the tail end of kind of 2019 but then were put out you know post march in 2020 they haven't really had a proper run so i guess from a Turing breaks point of view they're probably just as keen to get some eyes and some ears on that before they even get into recording a new album it's almost like their projects are going to start to run in each, into each other a little bit yeah, and I guess that they are going to be touring though as well, aren't they this year? Well, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah, that's probably something we should uh, we should direct listeners to. So yeah, they are um, touring to celebrate obviously the twentieth anniversary of the Optimist LP in in October. You can get all the t- ticket details on Touring Breaks website, touringbreaks.com. And you're right, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that by October, you know, we've everyone's vaccinated, the the economy's kind of unlocked again, and that we can start going to to gigs whatever that that kind of looks like um and i guess even if that can't happen fans will obviously be pleased to hear they're reissuing the album on vinyl because as ollie was saying there's not many of those in circulation at the moment so you know if you're a bit of a record collector and a bit of a turing breaks completist then you can look out for that um hitting the shelves the digital shelves i guess uh in the in the coming months which is probably a nice segue we're doing a bit of promo for them there because we like them uh for us so should we do a bit of promo for demo tapes sarah how do people get in touch? They can. I feel like I do this every week, and I think this is becoming my Desert Island Disc slot. So uh, people can get in touch with us at uh, emailing us at demotapespod at gmail.com, or we are on Instagram and Twitter at demotapespod. <laughs> it's horses and horses, Sarah. You're good. It's, you do this because you're good at it. You're good at doing the promo and the, uh, the shilling of what we do better than I am. And uh, I guess on that tip, how can, how can listeners do us a favour on, uh, on iTunes? Yeah, if you listen on iTunes, I mean, I'm being all serious here because uh, five-star reviews massively help us. Uh, I think we've said before, we were number 13 in the music charts uh, on iTunes once upon a time in the UK. Um, And we'd love to get that there again. So with your help, we might just be able to do that. So uh, yeah, please do it. It takes a second and we will be eternally grateful. Yeah, any and all interaction is always appreciated. But yeah, that's all we've got time for on this episode. I guess all that's left to say is uh, stay safe. And yeah, we'll see you next time. See ya.